Welcome to the Shida Kama Extractive Podcast. My guest today is Tavonga Muchichuti. Tavonga is Managing Director of Xavier Africa, a bespoke software development agency that has helped firms across Botswana, South Africa, and Zimbabwe transform their businesses by leveraging multi-layered digital technologies. He also currently serves on the board of Botswana FinTech Association and is actively involved in the local innovation ecosystem. Between all that, he's also pursuing a PhD in digital transformation with a focus on artificial intelligence, which is the subject of our conversation today. Tawanga, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you so, so much for the invitation. Fantastic. So uh, shall we cut to the chase and just uh, ask you to help us define the term artificial intelligence? What do we mean? All right. So I think I, I usually like to take a historical look into um, what it has meant uh, and how we came to this term of artificial intelligence. The idea really in the 1950s through a man called uh, Mr. Turing was that he was trying to figure out if we could be able to give machines a level of intelligence that could be able to enable them to actually go on and mimic some of the human decision-making. And over time, that definition came from a machine being able to make a decision from, is this color blue or is it red? Evolving to things like being able to identify a cat or a dog. And then over time, as technology got better, faster and cheaper, we're able now to have artificial intelligence evolve into you know, a, a form that allows us to be able to now have training of machines to be able to think and act like humans in a sort, and then actually go on to have them deployed to solve different types of problems. Aha. Uh-huh. So, so like any technology, it has evolved from somebody first conceptualizing it. Uh, mm-hmm. and then testing that concept and then the application and the applications mm-hmm. themselves evolving. Would that be about right? Exactly, exactly. Right. So so you speak of uh, machines being able to make decisions. Now that's mm-hmm. a little warped for an ordinary person. What do you mean by a machine deciding? All right, so I'll, I'll take it from this uh, perspective specifically. Um, in 1998, there was one um, issue or challenge that everyone was trying to solve, and that was to be able to see whether machines or computers were able to have a sort of reasoning and capability to think through things that could do something like winning a chess match. So in that case, a game like chess, what will typically happen is that there's a series of decisions that one has to make with an ultimate goal that they're going to eventually have. So before then, the main thing was that machines or rather computers would be able to probably make a decision or to make an action that would be one step or two steps ahead, but not necessarily in a cohesive manner that you'd need in a game like chess, where, you know, your move is dependent on what the other person is doing. And so that thinking now is basically the trans- how we've transformed artificial intelligence to be able to then take and say, based on a series of actions that need to be done, how can I, as the machine, be able to make decisions or rather to be able to look at patterns of what's going on around me to be able to actually um, enact what the next thing that should be done um, will be? Okay, so so that sort of uh, 
means then that instead of uh, programming computers to say, uh, act in a particular way, now we are programming them to be able to exercise judgment based on anticipation, mm -hmm. but also based on a desired outcome. So really, the, 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 we have taken a quantum leap from machines being reacted based on how we program them to exercising judgment while we watch them succeed or fail like humans. Exactly, exactly. So, so that again has again been around the evolution of uh, the trade. Initially, if say, for example, we wanted to be able to tell a machine to decide whether a color was uh, blue or red, for example, what we would have to do is would have to essentially say, if these are the characteristics you see directly, then it should be blue, uh, else it will be red. But now this limited how much you could be able to do because there's so many variables that could be involved in different things. So as a result, now what had to happen is um, through the evolution of now all these key technologies that we've seen, we're able now to be able to build you know, machines or computers really that could be able now to look at various variables, find patterns, and then go on and actually make their own actions. Right. Now, the word beyond what we program, I wonder if we could just talk about that a little. Uh -huh. Are we suggesting here that we might have advanced the levels of artificial intelligence uh, or the capacity of machines to decide, anticipate, and exercise judgment to the level where they may not need us or that they might surpass us? I'm look looking at the kind of AI system that we have today, we're still very far from that particular you know state. And that state is what we uh, what we call AGI or what we call artificial general intelligence. So generally, when we're looking at the field of AI, there's two parts that we're looking at. We're looking at what we call general intelligence or these sort of terminator type um, you know, robots that have understanding of everything and, under and have superhuman intelligence beyond human beings. And then there's the other one where we mostly are today, where we have what we call narrow AI. So narrow AI now is whereby the AI has been trained to do a particular task and has been given so many different types of iterations around that one task that it does it so well. So you will find this, for example, on a lot of the streaming services like your Netflix and so on, they recommend what the next show somebody should watch better than a human being would today because they've been able to be fed so much data around that one subject that they can be able to do that. Um, you look at, for example, um, some of the AI that is powering uh, for chess uh, today, a lot of it is able to beat expert chess players because it's really been trained in that domain. But now when it comes to more general intelligence, uh, you know, there's been attempts, for example, with the op with open AI's uh, chat GPT, for example, where it's sort of trying to capture a lot of the intelligence around human beings. But you find that in order to get the best possible results from a tool like that, you need to have prompted it so many times over and over again, such that now we can't say that it generally is better than human beings at doing general tasks. So when it comes to narrow AI, we're very close to a state where you know AI can do some work very autonomously, very well. But in terms of general intelligence, we're not there yet. Uh -huh. So um, some people will tell you that, look, the, these things are far out. This is uh, a little uh, of an outlier. But mm -hmm. my sense is that 
uh, artificial intelligence is now very much a part of how we we live. Uh, if if my car is anything to go by, uh, I, I think we can say that it's very much part of how it is. But for the, for people who may think of this as being a little bit outside of the realm of uh, the business environment today, give us examples then of a modern day. Uh, artificial intelligence applications experiences that are part of a groundswell, not things that are a little bit peculiar and a little bit on the side. Yes. So I'll I'll give an example um, of things that we're seeing even right here in Africa um, and not too far off. So for example, right now, we've actually just uh, finished commissioning a project whereby we're helping uh, an insurance firm actually collect uh, claims from their customers over the phone using an AI application. So what this AI application does is it calls the customers on behalf of this firm and it's been pre-trained on how these conversations should go and how the paths of these conversations should look like. And then it will go on and actually have a conversation with the customer, understanding what the customer is saying to it, comprehending what response it should be able to give and then keeping its goal in mind being to sort of persuade the customer on uh, how exactly you know they 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 should they should be going to pay the claim that they've currently missed, and this again is work that used to be done by call center agents or you know areas management teams, but now it's able to be done by by AI. And right now we're looking at it replacing about I think at least about fifty percent of call interactions and augmenting capacity in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, we also look at other good use cases as well uh, that we see almost every day around uh, product recommendations. Um, Right now, uh, especially the large e-commerce stores, your Amazon and so on, when you go in and try to buy a product, you'll find at the bottom there's some recommended products that they're recommending to you. And those recommended products that you're seeing there, it's actually using machine learning where it's looking at patterns of what kinds of products you've been looking around at, um, and then trying to match that with people who have had interactions around the net like you did, and then now mapping that to figure out that if you are buying this thing and you have behaviors like this, then you the next thing you must be looking to buy should be this next thing over here. So that's that's where we're looking at that today. Mm-hmm. So you, you made mention earlier of cost and the extent to which cost might impact the speed with which uh, artificial intelligence applications are either being designed or being used. Can you talk uh, a bit about that? What do we know about the cost to business and ultimately, naturally, the consumer uh, of introduction of uh, extensive levels of artificial intelligence applications? Yes. So I think there's been a very big evolution that's happened uh, over the last, let me say, four years. So before, let me use it as a, as a reference point, for you to be able to build an AI system within your organization, you needed to have a lot of big brains, first of all, within your organization. So you needed to have data scientists, data analysts, um, you needed to have data architects, you needed to have um, AI engineers, and all these you know different people to be able to do that. And they came at a very high cost. The second thing that you needed as well within your organization was you needed a large amount of data um, around different types of phenomena 
that would you know ideally be labeled data that is available there. The third thing that you need was quite an obvious amount of money for you to be able to actually go and train the different models on this data. And a lot of the times you'd spend quite a, a large amount of money to be able to train these models. And after that, you'd find that uh, the model maybe came there with a very low accuracy or it couldn't work and it couldn't solve the problem. And then you'd find yourself having wasted money. But what happened now in the last uh, two years, if I can say, is that there's been a very big shift because what's been happening in the market is that the cost of these GPUs that we use to train uh, these um, models has started to go down over time. And at the same time, what's also started to happen is the emergence of what we call these large language models. So these large language models sort of is one company that will take the big risk of building a very large model. And then from there, um, everybody else can be able to just hook up into the large model that they have and create their own smaller models for the different purposes that they need, thus reducing the cost by 10 times, if not even 20 times in some cases. So now where you might have needed a large team of data scientists, data engineers, and so on, just a normal software engineer would be able to actually start to tap in to give your organization a bit of an edge when building these kinds of solutions. And we're looking at it um, and saying, this year was large language models. Next year, we're expecting to see some more work around vision models. And over time, we're going to look at the need for um, you know, a, a large team of engineers to be able to solve these problems, reducing over time. Uh-huh. So, uh, it, you know, everything has a risk. Mm. So far, we think of artificial intelligence as, uh, if you wish, a, a part of how industry uh, and all things internet are revolving. But okay. there is, of course, uh, invariably an element of risk. So what risks uh, do you typically associate with artificial intelligence, especially in yes. the business environment? So there's, there's quite a number of risks that um, we, we look at when we look at the deployment of AI solutions. And the, at the very top of that list is the risk of um, privacy breach. So if you can recall, right, one of the main fundamental parts of building AI systems today is that you need a large amount of data about a specific phenomenon. So for example, if you're building like a recommender system to recommend what products customers must buy, the more data points you have about a person, where they stay, what they're currently buying, what they're currently doing, uh, what their IP address is, you know, the more information you have about this person, and, and more and more people, the more accurate your model is going to be. So because of that, that makes it very difficult because then now there's a very big risk that people's privacy is going to be infringed upon for the for the for us to be able to actually train these large models. And we've actually even seen suits from um a lawsuit, sorry, from uh a lot of authors who are claiming that companies like OpenAI have actually infringed upon their copyright rights by taking their, you know, their books to train their algorithms and their models. And so privacy, you know, stands as one of those key ones. The second uh, other very key one is the risk of job losses. And the risk of job losses is very big, largely because a lot of the work that is done today, you know, around the world is work that is generally repetitive and there is a pattern to how this work is done. So, for example, I gave a, an example earlier on in this in this conversation 
around how we automated a call center uh, to enable them to be able to handle more and more calls over time. And so that means that the people who were previously doing that work of the call center, they're going to have to reduce significantly because they're going to only be handling calls that the AI can't handle. And you see that with more, um, with more professions than any other industrial revolution, because we're looking at, for example, accountants uh, being replaced by AI over time. We're looking at analysts being replaced by AI over time. We're looking at uh, things like radiology, for example, where AI is able to actually tell what's wrong with the patient looking at an X-ray image. So really the scale of job loss that we might be looking at over the next couple of years might be you know, significant. And there's a very big push that we need to be able to make to make sure that we anticipate these risks and actually handle and, 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 and deal with them before it's a complete crisis for us. Mm, that's extraordinary because what you're saying is that the, the, the job areas where uh, humans are most vulnerable are those that are, tend to be based on a pattern, a, a mm -hmm. system that is repeatable, scalable, uh, and and the moment you have that, you then have the kind of data necessary to be able to program and be able to to translate that into something that a robot uh, or something that another uh, type of machine uh, like a drone can do. So yeah. uh, this is quite interesting because when when we think then about a revolution. We, it seems to me like we've gone full circle. In yes. the past, if you go way back to the agricultural revolution, that was it. There were no systems. There was no order of doing things, anything. Every every peasant worked in isolation, and there was no, you know, system and a platform to say this is how we do things. And and the 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 industrial revolution was really about that. The, the, whether it was Ford producing cars, it was about having systems that can be scaled, uh, but the human was was still very much a part of that. So now we are continuing with that model. The only thing it seems to me we are doing is we are removing the need for a human being. A am I right that that might be the fundamental difference? Yes, that, 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 that's a very big part of it, um, especially now, because look, in the earlier revolutions, what would typically happen is, uh, for example, in a farm, before the tractors were introduced, you needed so many different people to come in with, uh, with, um, with spades and so on to tend to the land. But when tractors came in, the number of people you needed to do that manual labor started to reduce. And so as the revolutions went by, the amount of you know, manual labor that was required uh, was reducing over time. But now the challenge that we have is that it's not just the manual labor part of it or on the production line. It's now also the ability to reason, the ability to think through actions and actually give a response that now has completely changed everything. And I mean, look, right now, yes, we're saying the repeatable stuff is being, is being automated by AI. But as the years go by and as we look towards this AGI that I'm talking about, we're going to actually start to see that even where there's no clear patterns of behaviors and how things must be done, AI is going to start actually performing very well in those domains. 
although with current systems it's not really performing that well hmm. yeah no i i can see the trajectory because really it's a it's a stage in our it capability and we mm-hmm. started off with basic uh mechanical technology to one that was uh, IT driven and digital. Now to your point, we've scaled up. Now we are in the space in which uh, computers are exercising uh, judgment. I mean, how far, I know it's, it's, it's difficult, but is there any conversation at all in your world in which we're thinking of computers even creating themselves rather than human beings creating and inventing and designing computers? Yeah, I think we're, we're starting to see a lot of that happening uh, because, for example, right? So, uh, of course, computers are in two parts. We've got the hardware and we've got the software. Right now, as we speak, we are starting to see applications like this, this one called uh, GitHub Copilot that are actually able to generate computer code to do different types of tasks. And we're looking at some of these tools become much better at creating systems and software Um not autonomously as yet, but we you know with a bit of human guidance, but eventually, I mean, a year or two from now, they'll be able to actually make full software on their own. And as we know, the software is the engine of any computer. And that there can show us that they will be able to self-replicate. Hmm. So, um, of course, we, we talk about the business environment, but the business environment varies. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and I wonder whether uh, there are some companies that to whom artificial intelligence as a category of companies or businesses uh, is more pertinent than others? Or do you think that in effect, in in the world of artificial intelligence, there will be no exceptions? That is just a question of how quickly we respond to the needs of a particular business. Yeah, so I think at the moment, we've gotten to a point whereby almost every single business is affected. Um, you know, for example, right now we were talking to a law firm that's looking to be able to start looking at automating parts of their contracting processes, as well as, uh, their process of creating, uh, arguments, you know, using AI. Um, at the same time, we're also talking to firms in private equity that are looking to automate their due diligence, you know, using AI, uh, in the same vein, talking to manufacturing firms that are looking to actually start now empowering their production lines with quality control uh, using AI, you know, at all the different parts of production. And so because of this now, you will find that pretty much majority of our industries, this is where it's sitting. I mean, even agriculture, for example, you know, we we did some uh, a project a couple of years ago whereby we were able to look at uh, plant diseases using, you know, drones and then being able to actually determine what plant disease that is and then what should be used to go and treat that. And that was AI as well. So pretty much every industry, you know, every sector is affected, um, you know, by this particular phenomenon. Yeah, because what you've done is you've moved from the agricultural industry to, mm-hmm. if you wish, the service industry, which includes law firms and, uh, say, insurance firms. And then you mm-hmm. moved also to financiers, as in equity, and then, of course, we know very well how much uh, artificial intelligence there is in any space where you are manufacturing and in any space where you have to monitor processes 
uh, at a distance or etc and and gather data so uh, for all intents and purposes it's really that's why we i guess we call it a revolution a fourth industrial revolution because it's a groundswell and nobody will escape some kind of uh, impact now when i think about uh any kind of revolution, especially one that is technologically driven. Mm -hmm. I think, of course, of the world being divided between those that um, have the, if you wish, R&D capability, who have mm -hmm. financial muscle to to test and, and advance these technology, and then who have the buying power and the purchase power to be able to consume where are we now? Uh, are we seeing any differences, uh, uh, say, for instance, uh, between the global north and the global south? How can we ensure that this groundswell is coherent? So I think this time around, the biggest difference with all the other revolutions is that with these particular technologies, the cost barrier is significantly lower than it used to be. Right now, the only big cost barrier that we have is in training and equipping our young people to be able to get these skills. And to be quite frank, with the advancements that have been made in AI today, it's become easier and easier to train and create models such that, you know, a, a, an individual student who has just finished, you know, their, their university or even is in their university degree studying anything technical, after about six months to a year of training in these things and, you know, learning, you know, these particular areas and fields, they will actually be able to start doing something in, in AI and actually start creating something in AI. So as a result, you know, whilst the more advanced, uh, you know, solutions like, you know, autonomous call centers and whatever will be more difficult and have a higher barrier to entry, things as simple as being able to automate your sales copy Things like that, anybody can be able to do that. Things, for example, like being able to um, have AI help you um, with some quality assurance of sorts in your small shop, the cost of all that has reduced. And it's reduced so significantly that anybody with a device, with a little bit of training, can be able to implement and develop them. And anybody with a device can be able to also access them. So that fundamental difference is what makes this revolution all the more different. And we're, I think we're actually going to see it gain more momentum and adoption across the you know the, the, the global south than anything that we've ever seen before. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Of course, we, we have seen this, haven't we, in some respect through the cell phone technology, that the level mm -hmm. of penetration uh, in the global south, in Africa, and levels of connectivity uh, with cell phones is what has really changed uh, uh, banking, because all of a sudden, wherein infrastructure used to have to be developed physically, uh, mm -hmm. with uh, cell technology, all you need is access to the internet, or, and that does not require a local government to do anything. All it needs is for you to be able to tap on global connectivity, and, and I, I think I see what you mean, that uh, what that does is not, not only lower entry barriers, but what it does is create a kind of level playing field where we are now all citizens of the world and we are connected by this technology. And, and we're in, in the past, when technology was physical, 
it that was what was a proper technology now isn't physical uh, from what you're saying it is more about devices and access to data and the ability to upload and download and so forth am i right exactly exactly it's completely different now the ball game you know has shifted from needing to buy all this very expensive infrastructure ship it from you know all the way across half the world and do all this now i mean you can be able to create any of this just you know right here you know within the continent Hmm. Let me ask you one last uh, question. Um, uh-huh. You know, there you are, you and I having this conversation, and there are people, as we speak, buying and downloading. Uh, and to your point, it's not something big. Uh, it's maybe third tier. Uh, but they are downloading software and being able to reconfigure it and offer a service, uh, albeit on a smaller scale than, if you wish, top tier. We are accustomed to operating in a space in which there are laws that govern what we can or cannot do. Where are we with that? I mean, uh, where are governments in Africa, and for that matter, uh, in the developed North, relative to those young people and those scientists designing these programs and implementing them as quickly as you suggest they do? Is the law moving as quickly as that? And if it is not, where does that leave us? Are we technologically in the wild west? Currently, I think that's where we we, we are currently in the technological wild west. And this is not a problem just here in Africa. This is a a worldwide problem. I think, for example, President Biden, just a few months ago, had to call all the key leaders in AI, from Microsoft, OpenAI, able to figure out you know, what exactly is going on? Because regulators by design are going to be slow at regulating and, and creating laws because by its definition, the law is a reactionary, you know, um, article. So the challenge now that we have is, other than any other technology, the penetration of artificial intelligence is simply, you know, too quick. So because of that speed at, at which execution is currently going on, the law is really starting to keep up. And I mean, this is happening all across the world. The EU, for example, uh, they've uh, put together a suggested um, set of laws around how this is going to work. But again, all this is still very behind because a lot, has, a lot has already happened. A lot has already been done. And quite frankly, um, we I think we will start to see a lot of you know laws start to come in place, at least in the global north, starting in the new year in 2024. But with, you know, our countries in Africa, probably we'll start to see that delay a little bit as uh, typically, you know, uh, a lot of our African leaders will wait to see how the implementation looks like on the other side and then, you know, work around benchmarking there. Uh, well, who knows, Satavanka? We just might need computers to to make the laws. Uh, <laughs> maybe the computer will move faster than uh, the human Well. It was uh, very, very insightful. Thank you very much for taking time to speak to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you very, very much for having me. This was a, a very refreshing conversation.